Christmas and New Year in the United States. I've got two sons who are living there, and between them, they have eight children. And we managed to get all eight children together in one house, aged between six months and 11 years. They're mums and dads. And my wife and I decided that it would be kind to them not to stay in the same house. <laughs> and so we stayed in a house nearby. But where they are is, at this time of the year, wonderful. It's like a, a wonderland with snow and sledding and skating and skiing. And it is wonderful. And I had great fun with my grandchildren. And one of the things we do is um, I read stories to them. And one of the, the favorite authors I like to read from is a man called Dr. Zeus. Now, if you haven't read any Dr. Zeus books, I don't care what age you are, I think you would enjoy Dr. Zeus. And my favorite is a book called The Cat in the Hat. Have you ever come across it? Some of you younger ones? It's good. It's really good. And one of the things we do, it's a bit of a tradition now, is that we, I read stories to them, and I put on voices, and we act it out, and we have great fun doing that. The cat in the hat comes to the house whenever the little boy and little girl are sitting there. It's boring. It's, but a day like today, it's wet and it's cold. And surprisingly, their mother leaves them in the house by themselves. I'm not sure that would be allowed nowadays, but that's what happens. And the cat comes, and the cat does tricks, and all sorts of things happen. There's a mess, and they have to tidy it up. If you don't know the story, get the book. And if you do know the story, get it out and read it, especially to the children. But spending a lot of time with my children, my grandchildren, I should say, brought, brought home to me that a lot of the things that, that I've become used to and accustomed to are, are not part of their world. Not just because they're in America and I'm here, and they think especially the ones who've been there a long time, they think I talk funny. Well, I do talk funny, but they think, uh, we go to a restaurant, a pizza restaurant called Three Tomatoes. That's what they call it. I call it tomatoes. And we have a standing joke about this as to how you call it properly. So I'm both learning from them and trying to teach them. And that's what grandparents do. It's what parents do. And one of the things that parents and grandparents wrestle with is, what should we teach the children? What really is important to teach? What are the values? What, what do we want to pass on? And in particular, this idea of, of Bible, of, of faith, of sin, which is the topic for tonight. I mean, is it right for me to tell my 11-year-old grandson about sin? Or, or is that something which is so old-fashioned, so distant from the world that he lives in that I should just let it slide and, well, he'll find his own way. So I've been asking myself that question. Is it time to bend, to get rid of this idea of sin? And spoiler alert, the answer is no. But let me explain why. I noticed that in conversation with the children who are at school in the United States, some are in Colorado and some up in New Hampshire, 
All of them who are at school are learning Spanish. All of them. Right from their first class in primary school. And their parents, I can tell you, do not speak Spanish. So when they learn Spanish, it's going to be something which is taught to them. Values, skills, knowledge given to them. And that's what school is about, isn't it? But I also noticed that when we're at the three tomatoes, and it comes time to dividing up the pizza, they have a sense of fairness that no one taught them. I don't remember, and I, I don't have any recollection of my sons, the fathers of these children are my two eldest sons. They never, ever sat down and they said, now, when we're dividing up the pizza, we're going to do it fairly. And, and if we don't do it fairly, it's, it's your right to protest, and you can call me out if I don't do it fairly. My sons never, ever, ever said that to their children. But all six pairs of eyes are watching. And as that special knife goes into the pizza, they're all watching to make sure that dad does it fairly and doesn't give too much to the brother or the sister sitting beside. Who taught them that? It seems that's something that no one ever taught them. It's something that is built into them. It's something that they, they, they're born somehow knowing. How do you understand that? How do you make sense of that? So there are some things, like Spanish, that they've got to go and study and to learn. And some of them are better than others, I've got to tell you. And then there are other things that they don't learn, that they have somehow picked up from somewhere, wherever that came from. Values, justice, fairness, the way things should be. And I imagine that it's the same for you. You look around the world and things that are happening and you say, it shouldn't be like that. That's not the right way. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not... There's something that rises up within you, isn't there? People coming out of a church service in London yesterday. A black car drives by and a gun's taken out and put through a window and... And a seven-year-old girl is fighting for her life in hospital. Is that right? Who told you that isn't right? Where did you get this idea from that there's something wrong about that? We're all, it seems, born with this inbuilt compass that, that moves in a direction and says there are some things that are right and some things that are not right. And it's not a new thing. It's not peculiar to people in this part of the world. There studies have been done about this where experts tell me that there are certain things that all around the world people recognize are good things to do and bad things. So, for example, telling lies. That's something that everyone, everywhere around the world throughout history has said, you know what? We don't really want that. Now, we do it. We all tell lies at times, don't we? We're not always truthful all the time. But all groups of people, as they, 
they look at that, they say, hmm, not a good thing. Another thing that people all around the world recognize as good is that if you make a promise, you should stick to it. We're not always good at that. That you should be kind to other people where you can. These are ideas that are not peculiar to Christian teaching. They're found all around the world. And so what I seem to find as I look around the world, whether it's in my grandchildren or in myself or in people that I meet, is that we have ideas of what is right and wrong. We have ideas of goodness and badness. And they come from somewhere. And even when people try and lock out the Christian message and lock out the Bible, they still have ideas about right and wrong. This week I read in the press about J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, she wrote the books about Harry Potter. And I think this June will be the 26th anniversary of the first Harry Potter book. And they stopped counting, as far as I can see, they stopped counting the number of books published after 21 years. But at 21 years, there were 500 million books, Harry Potter books, published around the world. The last Harry Potter book, when it was published, it sold 11 million copies in 24 hours in the UK and the USA. The demand for it was just enormous. And with my grandchildren, I've been taken to Harry Potter rides, and I've been exposed to Harry Potter sweets and Harry Potter this and Harry, until I was really not sure which end was up. It is a phenomenon. It is astounding. And the lady who wrote those books, J.K. Rowling, for many years was a, a cultural figure of huge popularity and significance and importance. And every one of those 500 million books has her name on the cover. Every one of them. And not only on the cover, but if you turn inside a book, there's always a page called the copyright page, which says who has the copyright, the ownership of the, the book. And her name is there. So it's in the title of the book, it's on the cover of the book, and if you look at that small print on the inside, her name is there. 500 million, and then we lost count until this year. And now there is a, an artist in Toronto, Canada, and he's producing a new edition of her books where her name is taken off the cover, out of the title, and even out of the copyright page. It's as if she had nothing to do with the book. It's as if she never existed. It's as if the books were just the responsibility of some other person, not J.K. Rowling. Why is that? The answer is that she has fallen foul of modern thinking. She has ideas about transitioning and gender and sexuality that some people find so offensive that they say, we don't want anything to do with her. We don't even want to see her name on the books that we've got sitting on the shelf. So they have an idea of what is right and wrong. And they have decided that she is such an evil, wicked person that she can't be even named in her own books. It's almost as if 
the creator of the Harry Potter universe has been shut out of it. It's almost as if the person who had the idea 26 years ago for Harry Potter, because until then, no one had ever heard of Harry Potter. But 26 years ago, Harry Potter arrived, invented, created, you might say, by J.K. Rowling, and took the world by storm. And now there are people who love Potter, who love the books, but don't want the creator. Don't want anything to do with her. Don't want her name even on the books. That's a very sad story, isn't it? But it's really the human story in a nutshell. Because the the Christian message that I do want to share with my grandchildren and do share with them, and I want to share with you, is really that same story. How this world, this universe, this magnificent place that we call home, not just this planet, but it's part of a huge, complex system, was brought into existence by the most magnificent creative intellect you can imagine who simply spoke and it came into existence. And he populated this planet with people and elephants and giraffes just to show he had a sense of humor and waterfalls to show a sense of beauty and all the magnificent things we see around us. He thought of this and he brought it into being and put the first people onto the planet. And at first, they looked around and they said, this is fantastic, this is wonderful, this is amazing. And every day, in the evening, when it was cool, the Creator would come and hang out with them. And they would say, you'll never believe what we... Well, you would believe, because you put it there. What we found today was this river, and as we followed the river, it went into places we'd never seen before, and there were animals there. We're still working out what to call them. We've got to get names for them, but it was a wonderful, exciting day. And then we we, we discovered this this shiny stuff that that was in the water, and when we we, we sort of dug into the ground, there was this stuff come out, and, and Mr. Adam, he says that he's going to make a ring for me and put it on my finger. Uh, and, 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 and we'll work on to see if we can make nice, pretty things that I can wear. And it's a wonderful world you've made for us. And he was able to give them significance and meaning and purpose and value as they walked in relationship with him because having invented this world, he knew best how it worked. He knew what was really for their good, how they would be fulfilled and happy, and especially in relationship with himself. Until the day came when the idea occurred to them that they could do without him. He was all right to get things started, but now we have got the hang of things. Now we have got our bearings in this magnificent place, we don't really need him. And so when the opportunity arose, 
they decided to step out, break his rules, his housekeeping rules, saying effectively, we know better than you. We can decide for ourselves. We're now grown up. We're now fully mature moral beings. We don't need you to patronize us and tell us how to live. We can live well without you. And they shut him out. And they started to live life by their own thinking, their own desires, their own ambitions, their own hopes and dreams and That's what the Bible calls sin. It's the dethroning of God. He is the the creator, the, the sustainer of this world. The one who gives it meaning and purpose. And we say, enough, shut you out. He is the one who is entitled to our allegiance, our obedience, our worship and adoration, and we say, not anymore. He is the one who gives us the instructions as to how to live best in this world that he made, and we say, old-fashioned, irrelevant, interesting historical document, but of no real significance now. And that's the Bible teaching on sin. The dethroning of God, one writer calls it the de-godding of God, where we knock God out of his place so that we can climb into it and be, if you like, stupidly imagining that we can be God. We can decide what is good and not good. We can decide what is useful and not. We can, we can decide... whether children with Down syndrome should be tested and allowed to live past birth. We can decide these things on our own terms. I have a friend, an American lady, who writes books about these things. Her name is Becky Pippert. And in one of her recent books, she she brings all of this into two ideas. And she said, sin, what is sin? First of all, sin is our God complex. We have the idea that we can control and decide and manage things on our own. And it's exhausting because we're not big enough for that. And the second thing she says wisely and rightly is that we're... we're, People who who love to worship, whether it's a football team or whether it's a a spouse or whether it's a, a love, whatever it is, there's something in us that wants to admire and to esteem and to praise and to follow and to raise something up and to find real value and significance and purpose in that thing. The Bible calls that the worship of our heart. And without God... We have this need, this thirst to worship, and we go around worshiping the wrong things. Things that are smaller than God. Things that are inadequate to bear our longings, our hopes, our dreams. If you're married, you're 
Your husband, your wife, can never fulfill all your dreams and hopes. No human being can, because they're not made for that. And when we put our worship in the wrong place, not in God who's big enough to hold it and to receive it, because that's who he is. When we put it anywhere else, it leads to frustration and tears and disappointment and brokenness. So that Christian teaching on sin, the rebellion against God, the de-godding of God, the worship of self or anything other than God, that's at the heart of the Christian message. And it's the heart of the Christian story because the story I want to tell my grandchildren is the best story of all. It's a story that's true. But it's not just a story of a problem. The Christian message is a glorious story where it tells us what's really wrong with us and our world, but doesn't leave us there. It gives us the answer as well. If I had come here just to tell you, you've all got it wrong as I have. Uh, We've all taken God's place and we have usurped his place and we have knocked him out of the way and we have made gods of ourselves or our family or our whatever. and, and, And we've got it all wrong. You'd say, well, so what? If we've all done that, is that it? The Christian message is not just the diagnosis, it also has the cure. But let me just take you to the Bible. If you've got a Bible with you, I'll be reading from it. And if you don't, then just listen. But before we understand the cure, we've really got to understand the problem. The the problem of sin is this universal plague that we can't fix. Rebellion against God, missing his mark that he sets breaking his law, disobeying him, offending him, incurring guilt before him. And it's something that is rooted in every single person. According to the Bible, this is not something that just happens to some of us. This is something that troubles and infects every single person on the planet, everywhere throughout history, with one exception. The writer Solzhenitsyn put it this way. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. So the problem that the Bible diagnoses is the universal problem that infects and spoils life for everyone on the planet. The Bible says that as a result of that, we have two big problems. Number one, we have a status problem with God. We're out of relationship with God. In fact, worse than that, we're guilty before God. It's not just that we're we're a little bit wonky, a little bit off, but we're broken, as sometimes people say. We're guilty. And secondly, we have a character within us that, that we can't improve. So those are the two problems, according to Bible, that... We have a problem with God's status, and we have a problem with our own character. So let me bring you to that to show you how, instead of being out of date or out of fashion, 
probably is out of fashion, but it's not out of date. Let me show you how the Bible's diagnosis is the best story, the best explanation, and the one that fits. The, the classic piece of writing of the New Testament about this is the book called Romans in the New Testament. Uh, Paul, who wrote it, was a very great Christian leader and teacher and speaker, and he had never been to Rome when he wrote this letter. And he was setting out in an organized fashion what the Christian gospel was. And the way he did it is very significant. He, he started out by saying, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you've accomplished. Every single person is guilty before God, is a sinner in Bible terms before God has broken the rules, has messed up before God. And then it's as if he has a, a conversation with people, and they say, but hold on, uh, what about the religious people? You know, those people who, who, who try to live by God's law, the Jewish people who were given God's law, who try to live according to God's law, are they not in a better place with God because they're trying very hard to keep his law? And he takes several paragraphs and he says, interesting idea, but wrong. The problem with people who know how to, God wants them to live is they don't live that way. They have broken God's law. So people who are religious in his terms or our terms are no better off with God because they have broken God's law, every single one of them, he says. Oh, says his imaginary questioner, well, what, about, what about people who, who don't try and keep God's law but have their own standards? You know, there are people who, who, who like that philosopher Seneca that, that, that taught the, the, the Roman emperors how to live and taught them ethics. People who are trying to live, who every day was examining himself and, and was trying to live a good life. You know, those good living people, not religious people, but good living people. Surely... Surely God will look on them and say, well, well done for your effort. And what Paul says is that the problem with people like that is that when you set your own standards, you don't keep them. You make resolutions, or some people make resolutions at the start of January. What a futile waste of time. Who keeps them? Come March, how many of the resolutions are in the bin? we cannot keep even the rules we make for ourselves. And then says the question, well, what about the people who are not religious and they're not good moral people with God's law, but they're just living to please themselves? He said, well, that's their problem, isn't it? They're living to please themselves and they don't care about God and they're guilty before God. So what he does is like a prosecutor in a court case. He brings the religious people, he brings the moral people, he brings the people who don't care a toss about God, and he says, every single one of you is guilty before God. That's the problem. What's the answer? This is where I want to read a paragraph from Romans chapter 3. He's just got to the point where he's punched home again and again and again 
that everyone stands guilty before God, no matter what your background is. And then he brings the good news. But now, he says, verse 21 of chapter 3, the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from God's law, although the law and the prophets, that's what we call the Old Testament, bears witness to it. So what he's saying is, God has done something new, but it's entirely consistent with all that he said he was going to do in what we call the Old Testament. My Jewish friends call the Tanakh. There's no contradiction. It's entirely consistent with that, but there's something new. The righteousness of God, which is a right relationship with him, so we're guilty, we can't fix it ourselves, but now there's a right relationship. How, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned. Yeah, we got that, Paul. You've taken three chapters to drive home that point. All have sinned, yes. And fall short of the glory of God, yes. It doesn't matter whether you're standing on Mount Everest trying to touch the moon or standing at the Dead Sea, the lowest part of the planet, trying to touch the moon. You can't touch it. And whether people live lives that seem to be better and more moral than others, all of us fall short of touching God's standard of perfection. If the pass mark is 100%, it doesn't matter whether you get 10% or 99%, everyone fails to get 100. Whether it's by a long distance you fall short or a short distance, we all fall short. All sin falls short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So because we can't earn it, merit it, achieve it, work hard and get it because we deserve it, because that can't be done, it's a gift. Through the redemption, which means setting free at a cost, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let me explain that. That's a very important word, but not an everyday word. Not in this part of the world. I'm headed, God willing, to India in two weeks. And the first time I went to India, I was taken by my friend, my guide, to a temple. A Hindu temple where people were lining up to buy flowers and fruit and all sorts of stuff at little kiosks, and then they would bring it up to the priest at the temple, and they would give this to the priest, and he would do whatever he did and bless them, and he would take it away and do whatever he was going to do with it, and they would go home. Job done. What was the job they'd done? Their idea was that the gods, and they believe there are 300 million plus I don't know who counted them or when, but these many, many gods are the forces that control whether you'll have a safe journey home, whether your business will go well, whether you'll do well in your school exams, whether your, your wife will give birth to a child that is healthy, 
whether you live to a good, all the things that we long for. There's a God somewhere out there who's got the handle on that. And your job is to find that God out of all the many others and to bring what he wants so that he turns the dials to give you what you need, what you want. The gods are against you until you come and give them your stuff so that they turn the dials to smile on you, to be propitious towards you, to look well on you. You try to make it sweet with the gods by your offerings. And Paul takes that word, because that's the word that he was familiar with in his society, where people were going just as they still go in India, going to temples and saying, here's money, here's fruit, here's an animal, here's whatever it is, please will you help me? They were doing then what they're still doing in India. And he says, that's not how God works. You cannot bring anything to God to make him smile on you. You can't square it. You can't please him. You can't bribe him. You can't impress him. You can't work your way out of this or buy your way out of this. But here's the good news. God himself does what is necessary so that he can look on you with favor. God himself is offended by your sin and rebellion and your guilt. He is the one who acts to remove that offense. How did he do that? Paul explained. God wants to forgive, but God can't forgive because he's holy and he's pure and he's morally right. So he's got this tension, you might say where he both wants to forgive because he's loving, but he can't forgive because he's holy and just. So how does God square that circle? How does he forgive people who can't make it right with him? How does he do that? He says, God squares the circle with a cross. It's divine geometry. That what happened on that April day in the year 30 or 33, when that man Jesus of Nazareth was hung naked on a cross, was that he is the very Son of God in a body. That's what Christmas was about. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate, the enfleshed deity. God the Son. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God the Son puts on skin so that we can see him and watch him. And so that he can go in that body, a real body, fully man, yet truly God. And he can hang on that cross. And God his Father takes his anger, his punishment, the right and proper response to all that is rotten and corrupt in my life, and he aims it at his son. It should be aimed at me. That juggernaut should be coming right for me, and it's as if it's diverted, rerouted, away from me onto the person of the Lord Jesus. 
And in those hours of darkness, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. He was punished for my sin. And having done that, God exhausted his anger against that sin and was satisfied with what the Lord Jesus had done. He died. We know that God was satisfied with what he did because on day three, God said to the watching universe, watch this, and he brought him back to life. All the claims Jesus had made to a special relationship with God were true. The powers that he demonstrated over sickness and demons and nature, they were an evidence as to who he was. And God the Father says, I want the whole universe to know that he really is my son and I'm pleased with him. And he raised him from the dead. He was seen of witnesses. It's a real historic event in space-time history. That's the essence of the Christian faith. This thing really happened. Not a, a dream, not an illusion, not a hope, not an aspiration, not some fanciful notion. This really happened in Jerusalem on an April day in the year 30 or 33, depending on how you count your calendar. But it happened. And some weeks later, God took him to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God, the place of authority and power and majesty and control, waiting to come back. And when he comes back, everyone gets to meet him. Everyone. Everyone. Those who are dead are raised. And they're brought before him. Those who are alive will meet him. And he will judge the living and the dead. And the basis of his judgment is already announced. There's a spoiler alert in this book. It tells us what the final judgment will look like. And it's very simple. There, there's a, a binary option, a binary choice. You're either received by him into his blessed presence forever or you are rejected into an indescribably awful judgment forever. And the difference between those two outcomes is how you respond to him now, here and now, during your life. Not something you can fix after death, but a decision made during life that this is either true or it's not. C.S. Lewis said of the Christian faith that it, wasn't, it was something that wasn't moderately important. It was something that was either true or not. And if it's true, there is nothing more important. And the decision you make about sin is really down to this. We've all got it. We can't get rid of it. And one day we'll have to stand before the Lord Jesus and either say, I don't have it anymore because you took it away on the cross. Thank you.
I have trusted you. I've surrendered to you. I've yielded to you. You are now my master and Lord and boss of my life. Or else you say, the sin, I still have it. The guilt, I still carry it. I did not accept your offer of forgiveness and relationship. And God gives you what you want. And that is, you don't want his Savior, you don't want his forgiveness, you don't want his salvation. He does not force it on you. My prayer is that you will recognize that the the Christian gospel is not only the best story that explains life and our state of affairs and is the best hope, but is true. And it's not just a thesis or an idea. It's a demand. God demands everyone everywhere to repent, to turn around from their self-reliance and trust the Lord Jesus. And if you don't, the consequences fall upon you that could have been taken away by the Lord Jesus. Will I be telling my grandchildren that? I have already. I'll continue to tell them. I'll continue to tell everyone I can. Because I believe this is the most important thing in the whole world. And because I love them, I want them to know it. And because it's so important, I want you to know it too. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.